Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode contains discussion of murder, body mutilation, animal cruelty, violence, and sexual assault. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. On a chilly October night in 1997, 35-year-old Wayne Adam Ford drove a cement mixer truck around Eureka, California. He enjoyed the quiet time the job gave him. He liked passing the tall redwoods and listening to the soft rumble of the cement in the mixer. Lately, he needed something to soothe him. About a year ago, his wife had left with their two-year-old son, and he often felt lonely. But that night, his luck turned around. Sometime during his truck route, he saw a young hitchhiker. Emily was young and pretty, and when Wayne pulled over and offered a ride, she happily climbed in. That she didn't object to a quick stop at Wayne's trailer. The pair got out of the truck and went inside. That's where the night took a violent turn. Once they were inside, Wayne coerced Emily into having sex with him. But he didn't just want sex. He wanted a way to release his anger. So the sex got rougher. At some point, he reached out, wrapped his hands around her throat, and squeezed. And he didn't let go until she stopped breathing. As he looked down at Emily's unmoving form, Wayne knew it wasn't enough. He wanted more from his evening. He wasn't done yet. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we're taking you through the life and murders of Wayne Adam Ford. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today, we'll cover Ford's early life, including his chaotic and negligent household. We'll take a look at a mysterious head injury he suffered, as well as his time in the military and increasingly violent behavior. Next time, we'll detail the aftermath of Ford's first murder and the slayings that came after. Finally, we'll chronicle the surprising turn of events that led to his downfall. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have some terrible consequences. I mean, think about the subject matter we cover on our show. I wonder how much easier it would be if we normalized talking about negative feelings instead of lashing out when it all builds up. I recently had a session where I faced some things going on in my life I hadn't spoken to anyone about. And when I talked about it with my therapist, I realized how heavy it actually was. And I was able to see it in a different light. And it didn't feel as heavy anymore. When you need to talk, but you want a safe space for that conversation, I highly recommend BetterHelp. Even if you haven't experienced major trauma in your life, therapy is excellent for day-to-day positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Serial Killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Serial Killers. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. 
Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a well-known quote, hurt people hurt people. But it's often true. Those in pain might lash out at others in an attempt to escape their own suffering, blurring the line between pain and pleasure between what's good and what's bad. Obviously, that begs the question, at what point are a hurt person's actions inexcusable? When is it no longer an unfortunate result of the abuse they faced and instead just a manifestation of their own cruelty? How much can we blame on past trauma? Wayne Adam Ford's trauma began the moment he was conceived. Wayne's father allegedly raped his mother. That meant when Wayne was born in December 1961, he was likely predisposed to mental health and behavioral issues. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. In a study by Elisa Von A. and Rolf Kleber, researchers found that children born of rape are at risk for various mental health issues, like anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Essentially, these children can be seen as secondary rape survivors. Just as pressing an issue, though, is the traumatic connection between the mother and the child. The mother might need to disassociate from her child, affecting her capacity to form a healthy, loving bond with them. From what we know about Wayne's life, it seems like this was exactly the case. His mother, Karen, wasn't particularly warm or affectionate. Even worse, his father, Gene, was rarely home thanks to his job. When he was around, he was very strict. Wayne spent much of his youth watching his parents fight. They constantly argued about money, sex, and how to best punish him and his brother, Rodney. Things in the family got worse in the late 1960s, when Gene was assigned to a military post in Okinawa, Japan. He had to take the job, but didn't want to leave his family. So the family left for Japan. It was a tectonic shift for the family. Wayne was in elementary school and having to adjust to a new culture. That said, kids are resilient, adaptable. Karen, however, didn't handle the change well. She was miserable and pleaded constantly with her husband to return to America. She was so unhappy that shortly after the move, she attempted suicide. She survived, but she knew she had to go home. So she got her kids together and left Japan without Jean. But even when she got back to Eureka, Karen was still in a fragile state. She needed company and started a sexual relationship with Jean's 15-year-old brother, Billy. They might have thought of it as an affair, but these days we just call it statutory rape. Not long after, Gene followed his family back to California. When he found out about the affair, he was furious. 
Hoping to put an end to it, he bought a house in Santa Rosa, 220 miles away from Eureka, and forced his family to move. Then, in 1969, Gene was discharged from the Army and able to return home, but it didn't make things any easier on the family. In fact, things went even more downhill in the 1970s. One night, there was an alleged fight in the household. According to Karen, Jean became rageful about her affair with Billy and chased her around the house with a gun. Later, Jean denied Karen's account of the night, but it seemed the incident was a breaking point for the Fords all the same. The couple divorced soon after. By the time the papers were filed in the early 1970s, Wayne had spent the majority of his life watching his parents fight. To make matters worse, his mom became even more detached from him after the separation, especially when she got a new boyfriend. When his father also started dating someone new, Wayne lashed out. He started getting into trouble at school and even once hit a teacher. The connection between Wayne's home life and his behavior at school are obvious, especially to psychologists. In 2010, the Journal of Family Violence published a study on the effects that exposure to domestic violence have on adolescent behavior problems. The researchers explained that growing up in an abusive household is linked to low self-esteem, withdrawal, depression, and anxiety. It can also manifest external behaviors, such as increased aggression and violence, as was the case with Wayne. The problem was, Wayne's behavior got worse. As the years went on, he became even more aggressive and rude toward his teachers, and often picked fights with them. And he didn't restrict his actions to the schoolyard. As Wayne's mother, Karen, told Caitlin Rother, author of Body Parts, he broke into a store. While we don't know the exact details, we do know there was a gun involved. When Gene found out what his son did, he was upset, but worked out a deal with the police. All Wayne had to do was wash police cruisers after school for a few weeks. Of course, this didn't exactly teach him a lesson. In fact, after spending time washing cars, he later stole one and took it for a joyride. It's unclear if or how Wayne was punished for the incident, but it wasn't the end of his wild streak. Even after the car theft, his adolescent years were marked by instability. Until he was about 15, he shuffled back and forth between his father and his new girlfriend, his mother and her new boyfriend, and other relatives. Unsurprisingly, he kept causing trouble. He displayed clear anger issues and seemed to go out of his way to get attention from his various guardians. But as far as we know, there were no direct consequences for any of his actions. It's possible everyone just thought he was being a rowdy kid. Eventually, though, Wayne seemed to decide it was time for a fresh start. When he was 17, he enrolled in the Marine Corps. His parents encouraged his decision, probably thinking that it would keep him out of trouble and instill some discipline into him. The decision was his first taste of adulthood, but it was also a milestone for other reasons. It was a chance to leave behind the abuse and violence he had learned from his parents. It was an opportunity to make a fresh start, to remake himself into someone new. To be fair, it's possible the Marines did teach Wayne useful skills like discipline and self-control. But of course, they also did something else. They taught him how to kill. Coming up, Wayne Ford's trauma gets the better of him. What could be more shocking than uncovering the dark secrets behind history's biggest stories? Realizing that everything you thought was true was a lie. Hi, it's Molly from the Parkhead series Conspiracy Theories. 
Each week, we take a closer look at the blurred line between fact and fiction, revealing that there may be more to the so-called truth than you think. The Rise and Fall of J. Edgar Hoover, 75 Years of Roswell, The Tragic Death of Princess Diana. On Conspiracy Theories, we leave no stone unturned and no skeptic unheard. Some may be just outlandish claims. Others may make you rethink everything. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Conspiracy Theories. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. In January of 1979, 17-year-old Wayne Adam Ford arrived at boot camp for the Marine Corps, ready for his fresh start. We don't have much information about what Wayne learned during his training, but we can assume it's where he took his first steps towards violence. According to a research paper for the U.S. Army and Heritage Division, from 1918 to 2019, the core ideals instilled by the military into its trainees could be put into two dominant categories, survivability and lethality. In other words, for Wayne to succeed, he needed to have survival skills and the ability to kill. More specifically, the paper stated that in the late 1970s and early 1980s, training included things like bayonet training, weapon familiarization, hand grenade and rifle handling, as well as hand-to-hand combat. Even more alarming is information published in military psychology expert and author David Grossman's 1996 book, On Killing. In it, Grossman states that in the mid-1990s, the U.S. Army had various plans to increase the trainees' killing rates and led the trainees to build an association between violence and reward. Though this was almost a decade after Wayne was in the military, it's possible that similar tactics might have been used during his tenure. With all of that in mind, it's easy to imagine that he probably became desensitized to aggression and was trained to see it as a survival skill or even a pleasurable experience. Maybe these were new sides to Wayne that his training created, or perhaps it simply exacerbated what was already brewing under the surface. If this was the case, these instincts were still lying dormant, hidden to anyone who might have been paying attention. If anyone looked closely, all they would have seen was Wayne focusing on other things, like pursuing women. In October of 1980, the 19-year-old met Kelly Pletcher. The two made a perfect pair, at least they did at first. He was tall, muscular, and a little reserved. She was a beautiful, blonde, caring college student. Though he was still in the military when they met, this might have made him seem more desirable in her eyes. She might have thought of him as strong and brave. What's more, he played hard to get, which made her like him even more. And right from the jump, their relationship was forged in fire. On a brisk November night in 1980, Wayne and Kelly were heading back from dinner when they saw a two-car accident on the highway. Wayne stopped to see what help he could give to the people in the cars and told Kelly to find a phone to call for an ambulance. The area was soon flooded with fire trucks and police cars so Wayne could take a step back and let the professionals handle the situation. But the night was far from over. While Wayne was at the scene of the crash, a drunk driver barreled down the road and hit him head on. The impact broke his jaw, shattered his front teeth, and left him unconscious. When Wayne woke up in the hospital the next morning, all he could think to do was ask for Kelly. 
She arrived eventually, relieved to see that he was awake, and the pair were inseparable after that. Kelly stayed with Wayne for the next week or so, taking care of him while he recovered from the accident. The details about his injuries aren't clear, but according to Wayne himself, he sustained severe damage to his head in the accident. While we don't know exactly what parts of his brain might have been affected, it seems it went mostly untreated, and it's possible that that played a role in the rest of his story, sometimes for good, but mostly not. As soon as he got out of the hospital, Kelly noticed a change in her boyfriend's attitude. Wayne apparently left the hospital friendlier and more kind, and for a little while, the couple lived in bliss. Then, in May of 1981, the couple eloped, excited to start their lives together. However, after the wedding, Wayne's attitude took a turn for the worse. All of a sudden, he was demanding, angry, and violent. One day, a couple of weeks into their marriage, Kelly prodded him for a bit more information about his family and upbringing. The questions were harmless, a caring partner trying to learn more about her husband. But Wayne didn't appreciate Kelly's curiosity and took a swing at her. He missed his wife, but must have hit something because he broke all the knuckles on his right hand. Unfortunately, the violence didn't end there. When Kelly got pregnant, he forced her to go to an abortion clinic, telling her that he didn't want a kid yet. When she tried to leave the clinic, he shoved her back toward the entrance and insisted she go through with it. At the same time, he pressured her into having sex whenever he wanted. No wasn't an answer he was interested in hearing. Perhaps he thought this was acceptable after watching the way his father had treated his mother. Or maybe his violent behavior was a side effect of his recent head injury. There's evidence that backs up this theory. According to a study by the University of Michigan School of Public Health, a person who's been exposed to specific psychosocial stressors and then sustains a head injury could be more likely to exhibit aggressive or violent behavior. And the abusive behavior didn't stop with Kelly. In 1982, Wayne went on a trip to Big Bear with a few of his fellow Marines. One night, they went roller skating, where they met a pair of 15-year-old girls. Despite the girls' age, Wayne and his friend invited them over to their cabin and allegedly raped them. After that, Wayne's friend got into a car to take the girls home. But while they were on the road, they pulled over to help another driver who'd broken down. That's when one of the girls screamed through the window that she'd been raped. It's unclear exactly what happened next, but Wayne was arrested for attempted rape. It's hard to say exactly what happened between Wayne and the teenage girl that night. According to official records, she was unavailable to give a statement, and she declined to press charges. But whatever the truth about the incident, it seemed to shake Wayne. Even though he didn't end up in court, he figured it was time for another fresh start. In April of that year, Wayne and Kelly picked up and moved to Santa Ana. While he was still technically in the military, he needed a steady income. Initially, he got some work managing their apartment complex. But after he messed up the rent checks, the couple had to move again. This time, Kelly got a job working at a warehouse. Maybe not being the breadwinner affected Wayne's ego, or maybe he was just becoming more himself. Either way, around this time, he got more controlling with Kelly. It started with him telling her what to wear each morning. However, things escalated one night in early 1983, when Kelly went out for dinner with her co-workers. When it got late and Wayne hadn't heard from her, he grew frustrated. He'd been paranoid for some time that she was cheating on him with one of her co-workers. He started drinking while he waited impatiently for her to come home to him. Of course, this didn't lead to good decisions. 
At some stage, he put on his camouflage gear from the Marines, got his bow and arrow, and hid in the bushes in front of their house. He lay in wait, ready to shoot the guy Kelly had been out with. But Kelly didn't come home with anyone that night, nor was she having an affair. And a couple days after this incident, she realized that she couldn't put up with Wayne anymore. She asked him for a divorce, and he agreed to it. However, in the months after he and Kelly separated, Wayne's mental state deteriorated. He was still angry at his ex, who ultimately did start seeing the co-worker Wayne was jealous of. Thinking about the pair of them, Wayne began having homicidal thoughts. He didn't keep it all bottled up, though. At some stage, he complained to someone in his unit about experiencing feelings of depression. That April, he was sent to the Naval Hospital psychiatric ward. It's hard to say exactly what happened there, but if he received any treatment, it didn't seem to help. He was released after just three days and showed no discernible improvement. He alternated between violent impulses and feelings of hopelessness and started acting out while on duty. He committed numerous infractions, like impersonating an officer and arguing with his superiors. Eventually, he was demoted from sergeant to corporal. And as he looked around at his life, it must have felt like he was losing everything. Desperate to feel in control of something, he started to stalk Kelly. Wayne called her constantly, followed her when she left work, and even wrote messages on her car windows. As far as we know, Kelly never reported Wayne to the police. Maybe she knew there was little she could do legally to protect herself from his actions. Or maybe she figured she just had to wait a little while for him to be out of her life forever. That August, their divorce was finalized. Then, the following month, Wayne was transferred to a base in Okinawa. By the end of September, his health went way south. One day, he found himself laying in his barracks in a catatonic state. He was frozen, unable to move or talk. Worried, one of his colleagues took him to the hospital. The doctors began a physical examination to figure out what was wrong, but Wayne took issue with their tests. Maybe he didn't want to believe that anything was wrong with him at all. Or maybe he knew something was up and just didn't want to find out what the problem was. Either way, he hit the doctors, then ran out of the room. He was captured and forcibly returned, then given shots of a drug used to treat schizophrenia. Over the next few days, he had to sit through multiple group therapy sessions. But most of the time, he didn't feel better. He went through extreme mood swings and emotional outbursts. Once he was more cooperative and in control of himself, he was released from the Okinawa hospital. But from there, he moved to different facilities. Just like when he was a teenager bouncing between relatives, it seemed like no one knew what to do with him. First, Wayne was transferred to the Letterman Army Hospital at the Presidio in San Francisco. Then he was moved to a naval hospital in San Diego. That's where, in October of 1984, he received a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. Regular listeners of this show will probably remember that BPD is marked by impulsive behaviors, mood swings, and problems controlling anger. Without treatment, the disorder can be long-term. But at the time of Wayne's diagnosis, research on BPD was still emerging. In fact, it had only recently been recognized as an official personality disorder. Therefore, there weren't many treatment options available. So, at the end of January 1985, Wayne was honorably discharged from the Marine Corps. Although they knew he needed help to deal with his disorder, they opted to cut him loose to fend for himself. And probably feeling like he had no other options, Wayne seemed to just ignore his diagnosis. 
After all, with his military career at a sudden and unexpected end, he had to find a way to make ends meet. He worked odd jobs here and there. He drove delivery trucks for Sears, repaired boats at a fishery in Eureka, drove a bus for disabled children, worked at motorcycle shops, and delivered newspapers. But nothing stuck. Then, in 1986, 24-year-old Wayne moved to Garden Grove, California, for a job loading trucks. That's where his luck seemed to change. He met Wadad Rodwan, who was in her late teens. Like with Kelly, they quickly fell in love, and they moved to San Clemente to start their life together. But also like with Kelly, Wayne's dark side gradually emerged, especially when it came to sex. While being intimate, he pushed Wadad's boundaries to the extreme. He bit her, leaving teeth marks in her skin, and sometimes poked her with safety pins. Once, he asked her if they could film themselves and if they could bring another woman into their bed. Over the next couple of years, Wayne's sexual deviations evolved, and he followed where they led him, even when they took him outside of the relationship. He once exposed his genitals to a teenage girl. Another time, he peeped through a woman's bedroom window so he could watch her sleep naked. It's unclear what the consequences were of either act, if he faced any at all. Whether she knew about these incidents or not, Wadad wasn't happy in the relationship. By 1989, neither of them were. Their relationship had been unhealthy for years. And though Wadad had once let Wayne's sexual misbehavior slide, it was making her increasingly uncomfortable. They sometimes talked about breaking up, but Wayne just couldn't let go. So he suggested that instead, they just live in different bedrooms, and Wadad agreed to try it out. For the next year or two, the couple essentially lived as roommates as they both looked for new apartments. However, when Wayne eventually slept with someone else, it was the push Wadad needed to leave. For her, this meant they were well and truly over. She left. From what we know, Wayne took no responsibility for his role in the failure of this six-year relationship. Instead, he was ready for a new life. Again. So he applied for a job with the U.S. Border Patrol. But even though he lied about his skills and expertise, and left out any mention of his demotion, discharge, and numerous infractions at the Marines, he didn't get the job. Things didn't improve from there. He wanted to start anew, but every time he tried, he was let down. He couldn't hold a job and felt the absence of a woman in his life. Perhaps his patience was drawing thin by that stage. Nothing was going right, and all it would take was one more straw for this camel's back to break. Coming up, Wayne's life continues to spiral until he lashes out with violence. Now back to the story. In the early 1990s, Wayne Adam Ford felt like he was at the end of his rope. His mental health wasn't great, another woman had left him, and he couldn't find a way to turn his life around. And then there were the dogs. There were two Dobermans who lived in the tow yard next door to Wayne's San Clemente, California home. They barked constantly, making enough noise to drive anyone a little nuts. What's more, the dogs also tried to make their way under the fence into Wayne's house. Wayne warned the tow yard's owners several times. He even warned them that if the Dobermans did manage to find their way into his yard and hurt his dog, he would kill them. But either the owners didn't take Wayne's threat seriously or didn't know how to control their dogs. So when one of the dogs got through the boundary fence and got into a fight with his dog, he made good on his promise. 
Just like he said he would, Wayne went inside the house, grabbed his shotgun, and killed the Doberman. Unsurprisingly, the neighbor reported Wayne over the incident. He was arrested, charged, and sentenced to five days in prison. But it's unclear whether he ended up serving his time. Other than that, there weren't any real consequences to his actions. Again. That left him free and clear, determined to find that new start he was so desperate for. And in early 1994, it seemed like maybe he'd found it in Elizabeth Alt. He was 32, she was 21. And despite the age difference, the pair fell for each other. They married in October of that same year and even had a child together, a son they named Max. But over time, Wayne's old habits resurfaced. He pressured Elizabeth to push her sexual boundaries and try new things for him. Regular sex wasn't enough. He wanted to watch her with another man, have threesomes. Elizabeth didn't like those ideas, but she also didn't want to make Wayne unhappy. So she agreed to give it a try for him. But this just set a dangerous precedent for Wayne. He didn't want Elizabeth to be her own person. He'd prefer it if she just existed for him, did whatever he craved at any time. By agreeing to his demands, she might have inadvertently confirmed his warped worldview that she belonged to him. That emboldened him to get violent with his young wife. We know that based on reports that he raped Elizabeth during their marriage. In an article from the National Resource Center on Domestic Violence, researchers state that women who are married to controlling men, especially those who view their spouses as objects or property, are at a higher risk of being raped by their partners. Eventually, though, Elizabeth had had enough. She was done with Wayne's possessive nature, with the violence. In July of 1996, she finally left, taking their son with her. After the split, Wayne was right back where he didn't want to be, alone once again. And he did something it seems he hadn't done before. He started calling his mother, Karen, for late-night talks. And they weren't light-hearted catch-ups. He told her he felt lonely, that he felt like she'd abandoned him when he was younger. Perhaps his mother filled the void of a partner for a while, because like all the other women who'd come into his life, she never told him he was wrong. She never held him accountable. Instead, she simply gave him some comfort. As far as we can tell, that was the status quo for about the next year. But in October of 1997, Wayne saw Elizabeth again. That month, they met up in California so Wayne's friends could meet his son. On the surface, it was a perfectly agreeable day and they all took a walk around a pumpkin patch together. But for Wayne, something felt off. Even after the six hour visit, Wayne couldn't shake his disappointment about his failed marriage about losing custody of his son. It wasn't how things were supposed to go. It wasn't what he wanted. Perhaps this feeling of disappointment took root in Wayne. Maybe it turned into a rage that he couldn't contain. Eventually, his frustration was too great. With his life at a dead end, perhaps he felt like he had to find a way to wrest some sort of control, exert some power. The last time that had happened, he'd killed. By this time, 35-year-old Wayne was living in a trailer in Arcata, California, working three days a week at a cement mixing plant on the Mad River. Late that October, Wayne was driving his truck around Eureka, just south of where he lived. The air was cold that night, and the fog hung like moss on a tree. Driving around town, Wayne spotted a hitchhiker by the side of the road. 
The petite girl, who we'll call Emily, was in her early 20s and had dark brown hair. Wayne was immediately intrigued. He stopped on the side of the road, rolled down his window, and offered her a ride. He introduced himself as Adam, the alternate identity he sometimes used, and took her back to his trailer. It's not clear how willingly she went along with his suggestions, but we do know they had sex in the trailer, and things got rough. While we don't know for sure whether things started as consensual or not, he ended up wrapping his hands around her throat and started choking her. He had done this with his wives during sex and had always let them go, but this time, he didn't want to. Instead, Wayne squeezed hard until Emily's body went limp underneath him. Staring at her lifeless body, he felt a surge of energy course through him. For the first time in what felt like forever, he was completely in control. He could do whatever he wanted. So he grabbed one of his hunting knives and stabbed Emily's body, not just once, but 27 times. After that, he beheaded her and dismembered her body, cutting off her breasts and vagina. When he was finished, he took some of the pieces and carefully placed them into his freezer. After that, he wrapped the rest of the body up in a sleeping bag and brought it to his truck. He drove to the nearby Mad River and buried parts of her near the bank, then dropped what was left in the water. Gazing out into the current, watching it take his victim's body away, Wayne might have wondered where she would end up. Maybe he thought about whether anyone would find her. Or maybe he just wondered how soon he could do it all again. Thanks again for tuning into Serial Killers. We'll be back next time with part two of Wayne Adam Ford's story. We'll explore the rest of his killing spree and the surprising turn of events that eventually led to his downfall. For more information on Wayne Adam Ford, amongst the many sources we used, we found Body Parts by Caitlin Rother, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Serial Killers is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Nick Johnson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Rohi Sheth, edited by Stacey Nemec and Joel Callen, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood, and produced by Bruce Kotovich. Serial Killers stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 